3: Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the CER podcast. My name is Catherine Pye. I'm the Clara Marina O'Donnell Fellow at the CER's London office, and you're listening to the final episode of the five-part podcast series from our annual Ditchley Conference. In this episode, we're going to discuss the EU's relations with its neighboring countries to the south and east. The Ditchley Conference, which is where parts of this episode are recorded, happens every autumn. Usually, the CER brings together top economists and political thinkers to discuss the most pressing economic and political challenges of the year. This year, the Ditchley Conference is taking place online, and I'm going to play you an edited version of the opening remarks that we heard from our panellists, focusing on the question, can the EU bring countries in its neighbourhood further into its orbit? Our speakers gave perspectives on this question from the standpoint of the Eastern Partnership and Russia, the Western Balkans, Turkey and Africa. All of those regions face their own challenges in their relations with the EU and confront their own geopolitical realities. Yet during the discussion we were able to identify common themes and lessons the EU could draw from them. Then, in the second part of this podcast, I'm going to have a discussion with Katerina Mathanova, Deputy Director-General at the DG for Neighbourhood and Enlargement Negotiations at the European Commission. But first, let's turn to the conference panel that took place last week. We had four brilliant speakers. Sergei Guriev, who is the Scientific Director of Master and PhD programmes in Economics at Sciences Po. Piotr Yavorczyk, the Chief Economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Shebnem Kalemni-Uskan, who is the Neil Moskowitz Professor of Economics and Finance at the University of Maryland, and Ebebe Emro Selassie, the Director of the African Department at the International Monetary Fund. Sergei Guriev opened the discussion by talking about the Eastern Partnership and discussed Russia's transactional approach to engaging with the European Union.
4: And the Russian regime, Russian government, is not interested in better relations with the EU. It is interested to use foreign policy To lengthen its stay in power, as every democratic and non democratic regime does. And in that sense, uh, occasionally it would seek transaction deals, whether you occasionally it would be very vehemently opposing and thwarting EU diplomatic and economic initiatives. But overall, the main goal is not to build. Uh, integration with the EU, the main goal is just to stay in power and occasionally that matters, aligning with the EU, occasionally standing up against the EU.
3: Sergei contrasted this approach with the overwhelmingly positive perceptions of the EU in eastern partnership countries, with the exception of Azerbaijan, and the potentially transformative power of the EU's deep and comprehensive free trade areas or DCFTAs.
4: The other countries of the neighbourhood which are Uh, Armenia, Belarus, Ukraine,
3: um,
4: Georgia, and Moldova have societies which are very interested in European integration. And uh, even though these countries have different political forces, the majority of people in these countries somehow have European aspirations. And that's why under any government in those countries, except for government of uh, Alexander Lukashenko, which I think uh, should be on the way out at some point. Um, these uh, countries will be uh, promo- seeking and promoting a closer relationship with the EU. So now, what a DCFTA can do in countries like this, a lot. And uh, the government that want to use DCFTA to promote reform can do that. And Georgia is a great example. Uh, Ukraine is a very interesting example where DCFTA was put in place, was highly popular, was not fully used. Uh, the previous governments in Ukraine did carry out certain reforms, including anti corruption reforms, but overall regime remains highly corrupt. The country remains controlled by oligarchs, and unfortunately, Ukraine is not uh, using DFTA fully. But this is not the issue of DCFTA. This is the issue of Ukraine being controlled by its corrupt elite.
3: He gave his insights into how the EU should engage with Russia on issues of mutual benefit, but also how Europe should protect itself against Russian attempts to destabilize the EU.
4: What EU should do, EU should engage with Russia, especially on non-zero-sum game outcomes, like recently bringing peace to Nagorno-Karabakh. But uh, the regime should remember that the goal, so the EU should remember that Russian regime's goal is to undermine EU and make sure that EU does not stand up for uh, democratic values in Russia. And so one of the things you should do, and this is not related to the CFTA issue, it's related to EU's own rules. EU should uh, apply anti-corruption laws within the EU. EU should go after the regime's beneficiaries living in London or Berlin and using corrupt money to undermine EU's own democratic decision-making.
3: Our second speaker, Beata Javorczyk focused on the EU's relations with candidate countries in the Western Balkans. She touched on a crucial issue, which is the current internal dispute within the EU on the rule of law and its potential impact on the accession process.
0: Uh, So we know that the process of accession has been revised, that now, you know, now chapters are opened in groups, and then you know if there is backsliding, you are allowed to reopen chapters that have been previously uh, closed. Um, that rule of law is one of the first topics that's that's being addressed. So that's nice, that's helpful, but it does not solve the post-accession incentives, and I think that's why the outcome of the current dispute. Um, between Poland and Hungary on the one hand and the European Union is so important for the prospects of further uh, enlargement. Um, you know, if this dispute is resolved, you know, the, in a usual way by muddling through and kicking the can down the road, this is not going to bode well for future enlargement because it's essentially going to fuel anti enlargement sentiment by saying there is absolutely nothing that can be done to put pressure on countries once they join the union. However, on the other hand, if um, there is a link between quality of institutions and disbursement of money, that actually could auger well for further accession because then it is quite likely that the EU will go in the direction of essentially some sort of conditionality or preconditions linked to disbursements of funds.
3: Beata drew attention to the high risk and political costs of EU accession reforms to politicians in candidate countries and the importance of credible EU membership prospects in driving this process forward. She gave the example of North Macedonia's recent name change.
0: Now, let's think about the dilemma facing Western Balkan politicians, right? So reforms are hard. Uh, Reforms require a lot of political capital and typically make you very unpopular because you have to step on the toes of uh, interests, vested interests, that are gaining from status quo. So... The dilemma for a politician in the region is what if I invest incredible political capital into pushing through the reforms required by the EU, and then I will not be allowed to join the club? Um, you know, Al- North Macedonia and Albania were hoping to open um, the talks this year. Uh, if you remember, North Macedonia even changed its name. Um, to enable that. And that's certainly a change that wasn't very popular at home. So it was quite costly in terms of political capital. But, you know, the the time is running out for opening, you know, German presidency is ending at the end of this month. And, um, you know, very little time is left for opening the talks under German presidency.
3: Beata also did not hesitate to remind the audience, without the prospect of EU accession, not only will other geopolitical powers try to expand their influence in the Western Balkans, but ethnic conflict could also resurge.
0: If the EU is not present in Western Balkans, other powers will step in, right? China, Russia, Gulf states. Uh, There is also a very real possibility that ethnic tensions will increase. You know, from time to time, Albania is talking openly that, you know, if the route to EU accession remains closed, smaller unions, such as between Albania and Kosovo, could emerge.
3: Next up was Shebnen Kalemli-Uzkan, who examined the history of the EU-Turkey partnership and where it went wrong. She started by highlighting the initial successes in the EU-Turkey relationship after Turkey joined the customs union in 1996
2: and the accession process was formally launched. For the next decade, what we see is wonders. This this process of heavy engagement of Turkey and EU did wonders for the economic process in Turkey. FDI quadrupled, most of it's coming from the EU. Exports grew over 40%. Turkey is EU's fifth largest trading partner. More than 200,000 Turkish entrepreneurs employ over a million workers in the EU. Turkey grew at an annual rate of 6%. I believe uh, formal accession, being a formal accession country to EU and this intensive engagement is the sole reason of huge economic success in Turkey. So what happened? Turkey fell short on democratic and economic reform, but things went sour also because of foot dragging of the EU with the increased pressure from members, some members, to keep Turkey up. Now, this led to the narrative, and with the help of social media, as Beata mentioned, uh, the narrative that the EU will never accept Turkey, and this led Turkish government to pull away from secular governance, put much less energy into economic reform, political reform, and then stop prioritizing domestic inclusion, freedom, cooperation with Europe and the US.
3: Şebnem argued that to restart the reform process in Turkey, the EU needs to change its tone and approach.
2: If EU keeps responding to Turkey's short sighted policies by slamming the door harder on Turkey-EU partnership, this action is going to keep undermining the entire region's economic and political security and NATO, and everybody is going to be at risk.
3: To re-engage Turkey, Shevnam said that it would help if the EU adopted more positive rhetoric.
2: The problem is the approach, right, the approach EU politicians is taking uh, pretty much the last, uh, you know, decade is about emphasizing the distance needs to be traveled by Turkey to to be good enough, this is not the right approach, the approach should be the distance Turkey traveled so far, and then list the to do list right, because that was the original approach and that did wonders in terms of economic and political reform.
3: Finally, she gave three areas for potential EU re-engagement with Turkey in the future.
2: The first one is the customs union. It has to be updated. These talks actually started but unfortunately stalled. Uh, Then also the whole issue of Turkey being included in the EU energy community activities. And EU should help Turkey to improve its investment climate and increase its integration into global markets. This is even more important now uh, in the age of COVID because although globalization is an amplifier of the COVID shock, globalization is the only solution to get out of the COVID shock. So it is going to be extremely important that EU and Turkey work together on this.
3: Our last speaker was Abebe Emro Selassie, who gave an African perspective on the European neighborhood debate. He highlighted the enormous demographic change underway in Africa which could shape our century.
5: There's two things happening, just numbers, but also uh, the demographic transitions that's taking place within Africa, which will have really profound effects that we, I think, uh, we think are going to be of global consequence. By 2030, in 10 years, uh, one in two new entrants into the global labor force will come from sub-Saharan Africa.
3: Abebe argued that Europe has a significant part to play in shaping whether this population growth will be a success in bringing prosperity to Africa and the rest of the world.
5: To the extent that this demographic transition goes well, uh, you're going to have, you know, on on Europe's uh, doorstep, you know, a region which I think can be of tremendous, tremendous opportunity. Just the consumption, the investment, um, opportunities that there will be to a smooth demographic transition uh, in Africa is just really uh, profound.
3: On the other hand, if the necessary investments are not made, the consequences could be hugely destructive.
5: By the same token, uh, uh, if the demographic transition is going to be uh, slower uh, without uh, you know enough investment in human capital to allow uh, the new work entrants to move up the technology ladder, uh, if the investments that are going to take place are more brown than they are green, you know, you're going to have uh, not just the spillovers that you may have from from population migration, but also, of course, um, more browner technologies that are being used with uh, consequences for, for uh, the you know, worsening the, the climate change challenge that we have.
3: To wrap up. Abebe made three recommendations about what Europe should do to help African countries in its neighbourhood. First, the EU should help offset the defence spending of countries in the Sahel fighting wars so that these governments can continue to invest in healthcare and other essential services for their populations?
5: The first is the urgent and the really uh, the most pressing one, perhaps, I think, which is to support the, the countries in the Sahel uh, overcome the huge security threats that they face. Uh, I cannot think of a more consequential investment that Europe can make than to, to defray the increased security outlays that the five, six Sahel countries are having to make uh, at the moment just to put some numbers around that uh, you know countries like niger mali uh, chad etc have seen security spending go up from you know uh, roughly 2% of gdp to 4% of gdp uh, this has come at the same time that overall spending really hasn't gone up and revenues continue to be under pressure
3: second the eu should help offset the devastating economic effects of covid in africa Through providing financing,
5: I think an agenda. uh, Europe working with, of course, uh, you know, other G7 members, G20 members, uh, international financial institutions like ours, where Europe really invests to reverse, in the first instance, this increase in poverty and displacement and dislocation that we are going to, that's going to come about as a result of what has happened now.
3: Third, and finally. Abebe recommended that Europe should focus less on migration and security threats emanating from Africa and more on opportunities for mutually beneficial trade between the two continents.
5: Being able to produce to markets that are richer, um, more sophisticated, has been a hugely important source of growth uh, for uh, Asian countries. uh, And allowing African countries uh, deeper uh, market access, I think, would be a very, very nice leg up. Um, in the transformation that they need to uh, engender in their own countries.
3: With this discussion in mind and the many excellent points raised about the EU's relationships with its neighbours, I am delighted to be joined by Katerina Mathanova, who is the Deputy Director-General for the DG for Neighbourhood and Enlargement Negotiations at the European Commission. Katerina leads on relations with the Eastern Partnership countries and with the international financial institutions, a post which she has held since 2015. She is here to discuss some of the themes that emerged in last week's discussion with an Eastern Partnership perspective on the debate. So, Katerina,
1: welcome. Hello. Thank you for inviting me.
3: Thank you for being here. So I wanted to start by touching on one of the last points in in the discussion last week, made by Abebe, about the pressure that some neighbourhood countries face on their budgets due to the conflicts that they're involved in. This is also relevant to the eastern partnership with Ukraine's defence budget, for instance, hitting record levels in recent years. Given the instability on the EU's eastern flank, and the fact that almost all eastern partnership countries face frozen conflicts, or in the case of Armenia and Azerbaijan, not so frozen, what can the EU do to support these countries in situations of conflict or frozen conflict?
1: Thank you very much, a big question well it's not only armenia and azerbaijan that have not so frozen conflict i think there is an open conflict also in the east of ukraine so let's not uh, let's not uh, forget that uh, what the eu does look we are we are a civilian institution so we are primarily not there to support the countries uh, militarily but what we have been doing and i think that uh, increasingly will be engaged in is support to, the develop, to, to to strengthening the resilience in all its aspects uh, in the countries. Because I think what we have been, especially on the eastern flank of the EU, witnessing over the last uh, several years is uh, really intensification of information warfare, hybrid warfare, affecting societies throughout. And so what we do um, that uh, partially addresses what you what you raised, but also partially supports the rest of the societies and economies is to work on institutional strengthening, on the uh, rule of law, on the strength of public administration, on the economic uh, resilience, sort of supporting countries through a very broad array of tools and across a number of sectors. And I think this has been necessitated uh, very much by the political developments and, and some of the conflict developments that you refer to. So just to sort of summarize it, we have moved very far from the traditional development assistance that uh, we deploy in uh, in other parts of the world and in the countries that we are so close to we share the continent with and have a number of very uh, intense uh, and and far reaching uh, agreements with whether it's the uh, free trade areas or whether it's the association agreements or partnership agreements with we invest in in helping develop both the, the the state as well as the um, civil society, the economic actors, uh, the elites, etc. Et and and I think what is also telling is that the the notion of resilience in all its aspects is the meta theme of our uh, next generation of programmes under Eastern Partnership that will kick in in 2021.
3: Great. And and just speaking of this next generation and 2021 in the future, um, we know that there's been some proposed changes to the budget for this MFF cycle with overall cuts to foreign aid compared to perhaps what the Commission had hoped for. Um, And obviously the new aid tool, the NDICI, merges the EU's foreign policy spending, including on the neighbourhood, um, and intends, I guess, to reflect the EU's geographical priorities. So I was wondering if you could give your perspective on how you think the new external budget might affect the EU's ability to build these resilient societies in the Eastern Partnership and to help them respond to the challenges that they face.
1: Well, I think that the NDICI, even with the uh, more, more recent Cut is still a very robust instrument. I mean I think if you look at uh, the negotiations of multiannual frameworks uh, every seven years, the Commission always comes with a bigger budget, and then the Member States sort of uh, bring it down uh, uh, to reality a little bit. So I think there is uh, still very, very sizable amount. Going to 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 the external instrument, and uh, yes, it's now going to merge all of the countries except for the pre-accession countries into into one instrument. But the European Neighbourhood is very much uh, continuing to be one of the key priorities. There are two uh, two geographic parts in the NDICI instrument that have uh, a ring fenced. Uh, amounts around it, and one is sub-Saharan Africa and one is European neighborhood. So I think that we will very much uh, continue seeing um, uh, focus and and interest being paid to uh, the neighborhood. And as I mentioned uh, previously, even our programming guidelines that 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 we developed etc we we look at the neighborhood as an area with with a much more nuanced and intense uh, type of uh, partnership and assistance uh, even compared to, to to other parts of the world so i think that we are going to be pretty well served with the with the new instrument
3: okay so i wanted to get a bit more in depth on the eu reform process now Uh, In last week's discussion, we heard Beata discuss the political costs and the risks that politicians in neighbouring countries face when they implement reforms, because, as she put it, it requires stepping on the toes of powerful elites. Um, So what's the EU's current strategy to engage with politicians and elites in, in Eastern Partnership countries and their societies? And maybe if you could talk a little bit about how this is needed to adapt a bit over time.
1: Well I think uh, when I when I listened to Beata's intervention I was very much uh, thinking she was absolutely right. Many reforms are very costly politically and uh, there is no question and I remember it from my own country that joined the European uh, Union in 2004 I'm from Slovakia I remember that the the prospect of EU membership was of course the biggest driver of the difficult reforms. Now, in the Eastern Partnership, we don't have that uh, reality, but what we do have is a very close association with the EU, with very intense political dialogue and very intense support to something that I consider in the Eastern Partnership countries, country like Ukraine is a fantastic example as one of their biggest assets and that's the strength of the civil society and so what we do is we we work on on both ends we very strongly support and try to develop and institutionally support uh civil society independent media and on the on the other hand we work very intensely with the with the authorities and uh we use very creatively, I think, our financial assistance through a variety of tools that allow us to agree conditionality that, that the countries uh, then fulfill in exchange for various disbursements of resources. Um, I mean, this has been a tried and tested way of accompanying reforms uh, worldwide, and, and it has worked uh, fairly well in the, in the neighborhood as well as in the, in the Balkans.
3: So we've we've had some recent elections uh, in the past three months in key Eastern partnership countries, which have DCFTAs with the EU. Uh, there seems to be mixed results for the EU reform agenda. So we've had the election of Maya Sandu as president in Moldova. We've had parliamentary elections in Georgia, where the governing Georgian Dream Party has won, and uh, local elections in Ukraine, where President Zelensky's agenda appeared to to lose ground. So I was wondering if you could tell us what you think some of the main takeaways are that we can draw from these elections regarding the reform process and relations with Europe more widely.
1: Well, I think that uh, we need to uh, take it uh, country by by country, but uh, I would uh, take two of the ones that you mentioned, both Moldova and Ukraine. Uh, one thing that one can uh, say for both elections that they were... They were uh, democratic and uh, free and fair, right? I wouldn't necessarily, uh, in the case of Ukraine, draw very far-reaching conclusions on the agenda of President Zelensky from local elections. I mean, globally, local elections are not necessarily always a good predictor of uh, of national trends. I think that uh, what we see is that in the Verkhovna Rada, there are still... Uh, there are still reform laws being uh, implemented on on a weekly basis. Uh, I think that the the alarm bells of oh the reform stopped is really not the case. Even despite the uh, COVID crisis, there have been a number of reforms. Whether it was the uh, unbundling of NAFTA gas, whether it was banking reform, whether it was the landmark uh, land reform, whether it was decentralization and moving sixty percent of personal income tax revenues to the local authorities, or a number of things that were stuck for a long time before and now are actually making their way through the through the legislature. So I'm not sure that the local elections were uh, a predictor of uh, national politics, but what they were uh, a very good uh, example of, that the decentralization works. We now have uh, the amalgamated hromadas in Ukraine that were a result of uh, of a very very in-depth and 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 broad-based decentralization effort where i'm happy to say that the eu played uh, one of the key supporting roles but also a number of member states and other uh, the us and, and and other donors um but there was no question about their their free and democratic nature about the elections so that's that's for the ukrainian ones on on moldova we are we're all excited to see that uh, Maya Sandu uh, won because I think she is a politician with vision and integrity, um, and we very much look forward to uh, working with her. But of course, what they will need is also to have a reconstitution of the of the parliament and government, and that's only going to happen next year. So I can just say uh, that uh, good luck to Moldova. We were just uh, having a discussion with uh, President-elect Sandu yesterday in uh, the European Parliament. And so there I can say we have a suspended optimism that uh, the next round of elections will also end end well. Georgia is an interesting case because uh, the election reform that preceded the elections was something that we very, very strongly advocated for to go more to uh, proportional representation. And uh, the OEC has given sort of a... A, a, a muted, uh, clean bill, bill of health to the uh, elections, but and I all I can say is that we very much hope that the Parliament will will meet in a full composition and that uh, the opposition will take its place in the Parliament rather than stay outside because uh, that's what we do in democracies. Sometimes uh, some loses, sometimes some wins, but uh, but th- there needs to be a full parliament to be the forum for debating various policies. So I think that overall we are... pretty much on track. I think that what we are seeing in the countries is what we see anywhere else.
3: Yeah, and just to to build on what you were saying about Ukraine, if I can ask you uh, one final question. A prominent theme we saw in the discussion last week was the issue of sustainability of the reform process across the neighbourhood and the danger of of backsliding. And you yourself talked about conditionality and its importance just, uh, just earlier. So in Ukraine, which you work on to a significant extent, Many are expressing concerns about setbacks in the reform process and the rule of law because of the constitutional crisis. Given this, how can the EU ensure that its reforms are staying on track and and how will it support their sustainability into 2021?
1: Well, I think that if we look at the state of the world right now and the uh, trends globally, when we look at established democracies and and newer democracies, etc., I, I think in general, uh, one can say that there is nothing like irreversible uh, reform. I mean, it's very hard to make a reform irreversible. You need to continue nurturing democracies, democratic institutions. You need to continue nurturing good policies. And uh, what what we are doing with, uh, with our Eastern partners is that, uh, you know, we keep up the... The, both the cajoling and the, and the pressure and the, and the peer pressure and the support to the uh, local reform communities. I mentioned the, the, the civil society as being a very important one, independent media being uh, very important one, and uh, the conditionality as well. So yes, there are setbacks. I think Ukraine is a uh, a great example of, of the statement that progress is not linear. Uh, right now they are in, in a constitutional crisis that we are all trying to help them get through and get out of uh, stronger than, uh, than they were. Uh, they're just getting these days uh, opinions of the Venice Commission to help them see through how to address the impact of the constitutional court rulings. So this is certainly not uh, a linear a linear process. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back or one step sideways. I think overall, the, the support to the government for their reforms, support for their economic development, for their infrastructure needs, uh, combined with uh, political uh, statements and what they may perceive sometimes as pressure, but uh, keeps, uh, helps keep countries on the reform path.
3: Katerina, this has been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for inviting
0: me. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then
1: you can find us on Twitter at
0: CER underscore EU.